I'll read, start reading from the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This chapter is Paul setting out an appropriate response to all that God has done for us in Christ. And in The first 11 chapters of this letter, he spells out what God has done for us in Christ. The the whole mystery of the gospel and God's big plan, not only to save people, but his plan for everything that he has created. The whole story is unpacked there in 11 wonderful, sometimes hard to understand chapters, but there it is. Romans chapters 1 through to 11, Paul sets out the big plan from creation through to when Jesus comes back and shows where we fit in the whole story and the impact that should have on us. And then in chapter 12, he speaks about how we respond to that. And we respond to that by handing over everything to God. No other response could be appropriate. Offer your body. All that you are, in other words, is a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. That's the response. And when we make that response to God, we join with all others who are making that response, the body of Christ, the church. And he goes on to speak about that, that we come out of individualism. We come out of independence. And when we give everything over to God, then we become part of his people And within that, within that group, within that body, as he puts it, we each of us have a function. And as we've been looking at this over the weeks, we've looked at some of the the, the different gifts that he speaks about, the different ways in which we show that we belong to one another, that we've got a contribution to bring. All of these different functions are all aspects of who Jesus is. Together, we're the body of Christ. Together, we, we see what Jesus is like. And so, as he's spoken about all of these gifts, we've seen how, yeah, that, that's what, what Jesus did. That's how Jesus is. And together, we are the body of Christ. This week, we come in verse 8 to the gift of leadership. If it's leadership, govern diligently. 
So I said all of these different gifts reflect something about God the Father and God the Son. So let's look at how God, Father and Son, display this gift. And obviously they do. They do because God is sovereign over everything. God created everything. He's in charge of everything. And so he obviously leads. He is the Lord. Everything is subject to him. He's the king to obey. And we, 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 we obey him for his pleasure, but also for our good. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we, we see God setting out his law. And uh, in verse 39, it says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commandments which I'm giving you today. So there it is. God is in charge of everything. He's the Lord in heaven on the earth, there's no one else, so obey him. But then it goes on. So that it may go well with you and your children after you, and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. He's the leader, he's, he's the sovereign Lord, he's to be obeyed, but it's for our good. It, it's for his pleasure, but also for our good, so that it may go well with you. He's not some kind of harsh, dictatorial boss. He's the one who says, I'm the Lord, obey me, but my laws are for your good. And if you do what I say, then you'll live long in the land that I want to give you. He's a wonderful God. That's why we've been worshipping him this morning. He's a God to obey, but he's a God to love because he is just so good and his laws are for our good as well. And so later on in Deuteronomy, in chapter 8, Moses reminds the people of how God has been with them, with, with God's people, the Israelites. Verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell during these 40 years. And so it goes on. God, he's, Moses is saying, God led you for 40 years. And he says, just look at how he led you. Yes, he tested you, but he fed you. He provided for you. He's been good to you. Remember how the Lord your God led you. God leads his people, caring for them and shepherding them. And so later on in the Old Testament, we see the shepherd, David, who became king. He started out as a shepherd. He becomes the ruler of the nation. But he remembers how he had shepherded sheep. And in Psalm 23, the famous psalm, he reflects, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. David remembers how he had cared for a flock of sheep. 
And how he had been, he had led them. He had led them where there was pasture. And he says, that's how God is with me. He leads me. He guides me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is the Lord. He leads his people But what a wonderful way he leads, David is saying. He is the shepherd. He cares for his people. He leads them. Hopefully, that's our testimony. Hopefully, we can this morning say amen to what David is saying there and say, yeah, that's the way God has led me. He's led me through difficulties, but he's always been with me. He's provided for me. He's cared. That's the Lord. And, of course, Jesus then comes to show us what God is like. And uh, the prophet Isaiah looking ahead to days that God is showing him are to come. He looks ahead to the one who's going to come. And uh, in Isaiah 9 verse 6, he says, "For For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and government will be on his shoulders. He'll be a leader. Government on his shoulders. And he leads, he governs. The way his father governs. He's a shepherd. And so famously in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of how he is with people, how he cares for people, how therefore we respond to him. And he speaks of the shepherd in John 10 and verse 3. He says, the shepherd calls his sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Government is on his shoulders. Is he some kind of tyrannical king, the way kings were in that day, the way the emperor was in that day? No, he says, I'm the shepherd. The sheep know my voice. He calls his sheep by name and leads them out. And the sheep listen to his voice. Jesus' leadership was startlingly unique. His disciples couldn't grasp it, really. His disciples understood, had a gradual understanding, really, of who Jesus was. They, They are following this man. Jesus has said, come, follow me, and they're following him. And getting a gradual understanding of who he is. And they begin to realize, perhaps, yes, government is on his shoulders. He speaks a lot about the kingdom that's going to come. So presumably, what he's saying is, he's going to be the king of a kingdom. And and so they're looking to glorious days that are ahead. And you know the story, how James and John get Jesus on one side and say, when you come into your kingdom, can we have a seat either side of you? We want to be part of the the action we want to govern jesus corrects them show them it's just not like that in mark chapter 10 mark chapter 10 verse 42 jesus called his disciples together and he said you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the gentiles lord it over them 
their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is radical. James and John saying, we know you're going to be really important. You're going to have a kingdom. You're going to have a throne. We would like to sit either side of you. We want to have influence. And Jesus says, no, that's how others are. They lord it over people. They exercise authority. It will not be like that among you. And then Jesus points out, because he isn't like that. He says, for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The government is on his shoulders. He is the Lord. But how does he govern? He serves. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is so radical that the disciples heard it and didn't get hold of it. Took them time to process that. And then you look at church history and you say, those who have followed Jesus have struggled to get hold of that. And there are so many sad stories through history. Well, by the time you get just to the second century, so close to the time of Jesus, you have bishops coming into being and having a a throne and having their own sphere. And what? The Son of Man didn't come to be served. But to serve, to give his life, a ransom for many. And so church history is full of church dignitaries, even a pope. Think, no, that's not, that's not how Jesus is. He's man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And well, do you remember that amazing story in John chapter 13? Anyone who has any leadership responsibility should read John 13 frequently. Because it's so remarkable and and so necessary that we get hold of it. It's the Last Supper. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. What a realization. He's come from God. He's not just the carpenter from Nazareth. He's not just the son of Mary. He's come from God. And he's about to return to God. What a time then to maybe exert a little bit of status. What a time to try and give a wake-up call to his followers and say, look, do you realize just how important I am? I'm not just the carpenter from Nazareth, I've come from God, and shortly you're going to see me going back to God. Now, respect, please, you might have thought he would say. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. Peter protests. Jesus responds to him. And then Jesus says in verse 12, Do you understand what I've done for you? This is an object lesson. And what? What an object lesson. He's doing something 
that none of the twelve would stoop to do. This was the sort of job that a household servant would perform and they're in a hired upper room and there's no household servant there and so no one does it because they wouldn't even enter their, their heads to do something like that. It's such a lowly task. Jesus does it. Do you understand? He says, you call me teacher and Lord. Rightly so. Yeah. I'm your teacher and your Lord. That's what I am, he says. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. The point then is this. He says, I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. He's saying to you, look, I am your master. You're my servant. Servants are not greater than their master. I'm your master, therefore you're not greater than me. And I have done this. A messenger isn't greater than the one who sent him. You haven't got more status than I've got. And look, I've served, therefore. Now you know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. No puffing yourself up and giving yourself airs. He knows these guys are going to be leaders. They are the apostles. He is charging them with responsibility to lay the foundation for the church that is going to be built that will go on through the centuries. These guys are important. Then they've got to understand that leadership isn't like leadership in the world. It's not about taking airs and commanding people and controlling people about serving people for their good, that it might go well with you. That's why God governs his people, that it might go well with you. And Jesus is saying that he, the Lord, has come to serve people so that it should go well with them. It's for their welfare, not his well-being. Leaders lead for the welfare of others, not in order for their own self-esteem or pride, or any such thing. But human nature, of course, takes these things and perverts them, which is why Jesus acts it out so dramatically that hopefully they can get hold of it. So it's a unique leadership that Jesus shows that sets the tone for all that is to come. So we see God is the king. Jesus comes to show us what God is like. The government is on his shoulders. We might say, yeah, it's just wonderful. Well, it is wonderful. Therefore, I will submit to God and I will allow him to lead me. If that was where we ended this morning, great if we made that decision. I will submit to such a wonderful God and I'll allow him to lead me because I can see that all that he says is actually for my good. It's actually that it might go well with me. If we ended there, and if I asked for a response, who's going to submit to God? I hope there would be a universal response. But we're not going to end there. For one good reason. When God says through Moses, remember how the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness... And they look back at the 40 years that God has led them. Of course, he led them through Moses. 
It's wonderful to be led by God. Problem is, he leads us through people. And it was Moses who led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. God's leadership of the nation comes through a man. Now that gives problems, and it did give problems. We read in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. We have some people coming to Moses in verse 3. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? The people are saying, We've got access to God. We don't need you. We can follow God without you. And they're rebelling against Moses and saying, really, you've, you've, you've taken too much on yourselves. The problem is God leads through people. And people are happy perhaps to be led by God. But when it comes to any intermediary between God and us, that's where we have a problem. And that's where the people had a problem, and God steps in awesomely to vindicate Moses there, the group that came to oppose him. Well, they stand there in front of Moses, and um, <clears throat> God split the ground apart under their feet, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. That doesn't tend to happen in the church, <clears throat> so let me just say... You know, you might well rebel against me. Um, I trust you won't, but I'm sure the ground won't open underneath you and swallow you. But that happened there. Because what God is demonstrating is that his leadership does come through people. And if we reject those he has appointed, then actually we are rejecting God's rule. Many well-meaning people think they are submitting to God and they're following God, but they never listen to advice. And they never receive any counsel into their lives. They've got, as it were, some kind of hotline to heaven and they don't need anyone else to interfere. God does not work like that. God puts leaders in place. So we read in Numbers 27, as Moses has come to the, nearing the end of his life and he is looking for someone to follow on. His prayer is very significant. Numbers 27 and verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. What a prayer. God, will you appoint someone? to go out ahead of these people. Otherwise, Moses sees, they'll be like sheep without a shepherd. They might think they're being led by God, but actually they'll wander all over the place. And actually they'll get into trouble. Have you ever seen sheep just out in the wild wandering around? One sort of peels off from the flock and a lot follow. You can go out maybe into the lake district or Snowdonia and ever so often you'll just see a dead sheep lying at the edge, uh, underneath a cliff. Yeah, it wandered. <laughs> there was no one to look after it. It went. Lord, appoint a man over them so that the Lord's people, they are God's people, 
but they could be like sheep without a shepherd unless they've got someone to look after them. God appoints people to care for his people. Those he appoints obviously have to represent him accurately. They're not there to lord it over people. They're to be how God is that it's that it might go well with them. And so, a bit of background. Let's come back then to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Maybe you forgot we started there, but that's where we started. So it says, if your gift is leadership, if a man's gift is leadership, let him govern diligently. Actually, a more accurate translation, a a briefer translation, if it is leadership with zeal. That's all it says. Now, as we've seen with all of these gifts, that they are special gifts that are given to individuals within the church. But at another level, all of these things are qualities that might well apply to all of us or apply more generally. And it's true here. Because leadership is not just a gift in the church. Many people have responsibility to lead. For example, in the home, parents, husbands. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is, is speaking about leadership in the church, he speaks about elders and the qualifications they should have. And in verse 4, he says, of a prospective elder, he must manage his own family well. And actually, the word translated manage is the same word that we find here in Romans chapter 12. He must lead his family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone doesn't know how to lead his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So a father in the home has a leadership responsibility. Now, how will he lead? Well, how God leads. How does God lead? So that it might go well with you. So he must manage his family well. Not as some kind of despot, not controlling, but to see that his children obey him with proper respect. Not with fear, but proper respect. It's grace, but it's leadership. In the same way, it goes on later on in verse uh, verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must lead his children and his household well. So husbands, you're the leader of your home. Parents, you're leading your children. Now, it says for leaders, govern diligently is the translation or Literally, with zeal. In other words, Moses, uh, Paul is saying here, there is a danger for people who are entrusted with leadership responsibility that they just let it drop. They've got to be zealous about this. There's got to be a bit of, I'm going to exert myself to take responsibility where God has given me responsibility. It's all too easy. For someone, for example, for a husband to be lazy and not lead, not take responsibility. Now, it can go too far that you get a husband who says, I'm the head of the home and therefore all decisions must be run past me and I'm in charge and you'll do what I say. That's horrific. That's not how God leads. It's not how Jesus led. 
He served. Jesus came to serve. But Jesus was also the Lord. And so a husband wants his wife to thrive, wants his children to thrive. It's not controlling, but enabling and facilitating. A good father, good parents want their children to grow well, not controlled, but able to grow into adulthood and take responsibility, obeying with proper respect. In other words, they've learned obedience, they've been trained to obey, but they're not afraid. There's, there's an easy atmosphere. And, and Paul says, it's only someone who's done that in his family who can take care of the church, because in a church you want people to thrive. You want people to grow in their in capacity. You don't want people to be under control all the time and feeling uh, frightened and they've got to do things, otherwise they'll be told off. You don't, want, you don't want that in the home. But you do want kids who you can trust. They're just a look and they'll obey you. Because they know. You're, they, they know the style of your leadership. They respect you, but they're thriving. Leadership. Govern diligently, taking, taking responsibility for the good of those who are being led. God's leadership is so that it might go well with you. And that's how we lead. Not imposing our will, but so that those who are led will thrive. But then, it is a specific gift. If it's leadership... Let him govern diligently. There is a gift of leadership. I think sometimes that gets sidestepped. Well, let me change that. I think often that gets sidestepped. You will know, those of you who are part of the church here, you will know that uh, the Sheffield here, we, we are a base for something called leadership training. Just this last week on Thursday and Friday, uh, we had some 30 or so people from all around uh, here for two days of leadership training. Leader, it might sound a bit odd then for me to say what I'm about to say. But leadership in the church is not the result of training. You can't train someone to be a leader. It's a gift. You can train the gift. But there's no substitute for the gift. It's a gift of leadership. And if you sidestep that and just train someone to be a leader, well, then they've got all the skills. They've got all the notes that they've taken in lectures. They've read the books. And they know how to lead. They've been taught how to lead. But what empowers that leading? Well, not a gift. Their own energy, their own personality, their training. And all too often, you encounter churches or groups of people that are led by someone who is not actually operating in their gift. I had someone, an elder in another church, asking me quite recently, what to do about a situation in the eldership team of which he was a part. He said, the lead elder 
bullies people. He said that's the only way he can lead. He, he just bullies people, so people have to do as they're told. And he said, we're, we're just losing good people. They just can't cope with the way he, he controls them. Now, I honestly didn't know what to say to the guy, because I thought, what, what do you do in a situation like that? That man should not be leading. Because he's not gifted to lead, he's got to use his, his personality. Where it's a gift, Yes, you exert yourself to lead, but people will follow. If the gift isn't there, you've got to make people follow. Because the gift doesn't work. There's no gift there to work. This gift cannot be replaced by anything else. It cannot be replaced by training. It certainly cannot be replaced by just promoting someone because they've been around a long time. It can't can't be replaced by someone who's been part of a leadership team and maybe the lead elder moves on and someone else gets promoted to be the leader. No, is there a gift? Is there the gift of leadership? To lead without the anointing to lead will involve leading by some other kind of power and people don't thrive. A church can look good, it can grow numerically even. But it's a controlled group. And actually people are doing as they're told rather than thriving in what God is giving them. So the gift of leadership is irreplaceable. And those who have that gift then will be charged with responsibility to lead like Jesus leads. To represent him. Not lording it over people. Not demanding obedience, but serving, operating in faith, knowing the grace of God. One of the the, the stories about Jesus that's, well, that strikes me as being so significant. And uh, the story of him washing the disciples' feet is one such story, but another story that, uh, that continually amazes me, and I think, I want to be like that, was it's in John chapter 6 when uh, Jesus has given some hard teaching and a lot of the people who were following him have decided they've had enough of this and they leave. And Jesus is told that they're leaving. The disciples come and say, this is, this is a hard saying. And Jesus' response to them, this is the thing that just grips me. Jesus' response to them is, do you want to go? Wow. There's a guy who is leading in faith and grace. He doesn't clamp down and say, you mustn't go. But do you want to go? He's not so concerned to be successful. He's got faith. There's grace. Where there's grace, people thrive. The response, of course, when he said, do you want to go, was, who can we go to? You've got the words of life. Wonderful. People you can work with. Leading in grace. Got to say, maybe, uh, well, I'll say this and it can be understood or misunderstood. I don't know. But looking at the site map from north this year, I was astonished to see that our site was the biggest. That's not something to be proud of, though I am. No, it's not something to be proud of. But our site was the biggest. I think that is absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. The previous year, we had slithered around in mud, 
tents had come down. It was abysmal and abominable. And the previous year, I doubted that many would go back to north this year. And you did. Masses of you. And we had the biggest sight. Why? We didn't put a three-line whip on. We announced it was happening, but didn't say very much about it. And yet you all came. I think, why? I think, mad. No. (laughs) What I really think is grace. It's grace. Where there is no compulsion and pressure, people follow. Where there's pressure, people resist. And I am astonished at the level of unity in the church here and the level of cooperation and the level of response when we could hardly be more laid back about things. I mean, the other week, the last time I was preaching on giving and warming to my theme, you'll remember... (laughs) I I was astonished to hear myself saying, if you don't want to give, that's fine. I said, if you've got a standing order and you want to cancel it, do so. And, you know, I I said, God owns everything anyway. He doesn't need your money. And so it's a bit silly, but that's what I said, and I'd still believe it. The following week, I discovered the offering was about 16 times more than it normally is. When I've just said, don't give if you don't want to. Cancel your standing order. <laughs> Grace actually works. Law doesn't. And where people lead with personality and pushing and controlling and ordering, yeah, people might do as they're told, but there's a large measure of resentment. Jesus, when he's told everyone's leaving, said, do you want to go? In other words, the door's open. No, they want to stay. And they're committed the gift of leadership. Jesus modeled it. Jesus not only taught truth, he lived truth. People could watch him and see what he did, and they saw what he taught was actually working in his life. He was a man to follow. Those who lead must have a way of life that matches what they say. That's what Paul says. He said, I'm sending Timothy to you. He said, he's my son. And he will remind you of everything I teach that agrees with what I I do. The two, two things go together. Way of life and teaching go together in someone called by God to lead. God wants leaders in the church for the same reason that Moses prayed for his successor. God doesn't want his people to be like shepherdless sheep. Remember how Jesus looked over Jerusalem Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36. Oh no, this, sorry, this is not, when he's just seeing the crowds. He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says, had compassion. That's a very strong word. It means he, he, he was kind of, it's a kind of gut-wrenching experience. He looks at them, oh no, he sees these people. Who's going to look after them? They're like sheep without a shepherd. God wants his people to be shepherded. God wants his people to be cared for, 
to be fed, to be steered, to be protected from wrong moves, to be kept from going astray, to be set an example, to be given a lead. It's what a shepherd does. And God sees his people, and he sees people, well, Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. That's what we're like. We do our own thing, and we make our own decisions, and yeah, we get into trouble. Now, God wants not sheep who are going their own way, but sheep who are cared for, not controlled, but cared for. There's nothing more painful in church leadership than standing helplessly by and seeing people make disastrous decisions. It can be a marriage or a career move. Or, and they, they didn't ask advice. They didn't submit to anyone. They knew best. And you just look and think, it'll end in tears. But if they don't ask advice, or if maybe they reject advice, because God has said so. Yeah, hotline to heaven. Yeah, we want to be led by God, but he leads normally through people. Now a wise leader will say to someone, what do you feel God has said to you? We don't want to replace God. But God puts shepherds there so that his sheep don't go astray. And if people feel they know best, well, then you can't do anything about it because we're not controlling. But when you see wrong decisions and then years later you see the pain of someone who has made that wrong move, you think, oh, if only. Because you can't make people, can't make people obey. But Jesus saw the crowd and he's moved with compassion. They're like sheep without a shepherd. God puts leaders in the church because... He wants it to go well with us. Not just preachers, but leaders. And then it's up to people how they respond. But for those who are called to lead, then with zeal. Exerting yourself to lead. To move out in faith. To break cover. To take the risks to lead God's people through the difficulties, not facing the difficulty just along with the people and floundering, not just helplessly hoping God will turn up and do something and say, no, we're called to lead. The night that, uh, many, many years ago now, the night when I was, I suppose the word is ordained as the minister of a Baptist church, I actually had a clerical collar on, and there are photographs of the event. But anyway, I won't let any of you see that. But the the night I was ordained, the principal of the college where I'd been trained came to preach. And uh, he actually, um, I would say, prophesied, although I I doubt that he realized what he was doing. I don't know. But uh, the words he brought were words that have come to me again and again and again since then. uh, Exodus 14, verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the Israelites can go through. 
A word to the leader. Don't just pray about it. Lead the people. Why are you crying out to me? Tell them to move on. And in all kinds of situations, difficulties, you think, what on earth are we going to do now? It's very attractive for a leader to want the people to lead and think, oh, I'll follow them. Or we'll go together. No, the word to a leader is zeal. Come on, exert yourself. You tell the people to move through. You come to a difficult situation, what are we going to do? You've got to lead the people through. That it might go well with them. You don't want them hurt. You don't want them to flounder. You don't want them to be led astray. You've got to go through. How do we do that? Well, it's the gift of leadership. And the temptation is always to hang back and say, I don't know what to do. No, we don't know what to do. Moses didn't know what to do. God says, now lead. And it's always forward. Leading implies movement forward. The leader goes out in front and the people he hopes will follow. But it's leading, opening a way, enabling people to go through into all that God has got for them. For Moses, there's a land flowing with milk and honey. That's where we're going. And we cannot stop just because there's an obstacle. Got to go through because there's somewhere God wants us to go. That's the gift of leadership. So what about those who are led? Well, at this point, I'm just going to quote Scripture because obviously God has put me here as a leader and I want to be careful what I say. So let the Scripture speak for itself. I'm not going to add anything to it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. goes on to say, don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses and those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. And then Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders. Submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. For all of us, there's a kind of decision that's got to be made. <clears throat> a decision to say, I am willing to be led. I want to be led in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And, yeah, I want to be led by God. Of course I do. But I see that God puts imperfect people in positions of leadership. When, when the group came against Moses, yeah, there are some legitimate complaints they could bring. He was not perfect, but God had put him there. We look for perfection in a leader, we'll look in vain. We'll never find anyone. But if we want to be led by God in paths of righteousness, we have to accept all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We want to come back. We don't want to be like shepherdless sheep. We want to be kept we want, to be, we want to submit. You know, sometimes said as a criticism of people, of course, they're easily led. 
Yeah, well, that's not a good quality. But actually in the church it is. <laughs> to say, I want to be easily led. I don't want to, I don't want to create problems. Yeah, it, it's not control. But I want to be easily led. So I'd say pray for your leaders that they'll know where they're going. <laughs> it's a rather important quality in anyone leading. But also let's face the independence, the pride, maybe hurts in previous situations or suspicions, all the things that cause us to be independent and say, I'll follow God, but I won't follow anyone else. Actually, you're then unwilling to follow God because he wants to lead through people. You need to face that and say, oh God, teach me, help me. Maybe you struggle with it. But God puts leaders in the church that it might go well with you. And so that the church can come into all the promises that he's got for us. We can only come into that if we're led into it. We don't stumble in it or ramble into it. No, it's purposeful. And we want to say, yeah, we want to move like that. And we don't want to make wrong decisions. We don't want to make big decisions that will affect the rest of our life and we can't get out of it. And, oh, if only we'd accepted counsel. Well, let's be the sort of people who are easily led. Let's pray.